the Lord has given to me what I think is a very important teaching. Brought it to my mind this morning, so I'm going to do that next week. This morning... (laughs) uh, This morning we have an equally important teaching here in Ezekiel 18, and so let's, let's draw in and hear from the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, All souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins will die. Father, we recognize there is a seriousness to this teaching. And I pray, Father, we will take these words with their full import. That your Spirit, Father, would import them into our hearts in a deep and a meaningful way. Lord, that we would grow by them. As much as we talked about earlier, that that the children need the truth, need to grow up in the truth so they don't walk away from the truth. So we, Father, every step of our lives need your truth to lead us forward. Without your truth, we wander so quickly and so easily. I pray you will embed your truth into our hearts. Holy Spirit, you are the Spirit of truth. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a boy... Many of you know I had several surgeries. And coming home from those surgeries, oftentimes people from church would come by with a card or a gift or something, and I always looked forward to that. There was one gift in particular that an elderly gentleman from our church brought over to the house and gave to me. It's wrapped up in a little package. It was a small book. It was an illustrated book of Aesop's fables. Now, as a 10-year-old kid, I'd never heard of Aesop before. Um, I thought it was like a cleansing agent or something. Turns out, (laughs) Aesop was born a Greek slave on the island of Samos in 620 B.C. He was born and lived right around the same time of Ezekiel, just in a different part of the world. Aesop has been known to write some of the most famous fables Uh, truly in history, and and his fables are still read and used in in schools today. He's one of my favorite old fable writers. I grew to love that book and to read those stories because each story, being a fable, had a moral. Well, here's one of my favorites. It's called The Fox and the Grapes. One hot summer's day, a fox was strolling through an orchard till he came to a bunch of grapes just ripening on a vine, which had been trained over a lofty branch. Just the thing to quench my thirst, quoth he. Drawing back a few paces, he took a run and a jump and just missed the branch. Turning around again with a one, two, three, he jumped up, but with no greater success. Again and again, he tried after the tempting morsel, but at last had to give up and walked away with his nose in the air, saying, I'm sure they're sour. Aesop writes, It is easy to despise what you cannot get. And there's wisdom there. That in a nutshell, or perhaps in a grape skin, is why, that is why I believe many people would despise God's grace. They just can't get it. They feel like it's just out of reach. They try for it, but recognize there is not enough goodness in them to make the leap. None of us have that. Every one of us who have ever tried to achieve God's grace knows that feeling of leaping for the good grapes and being unable to reach them. Some would wander off despising the very sweetness because it's easy to despise what you cannot get. And we can't get grace. Except for the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. And he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The grapes are not sour. The grapes are sweet. Salvation is sweet. Grace is sweet. 
But when you think it's out of reach, as Aesop said, it becomes easy to despise it. And so I think that's why people would despise church or despise Jesus or despise Christianity or despise morality because at some point in their life they tried to reach for grace and felt like it was out of reach. When people go down that road, they will either ignore God or begin to make excuses for their condition. And we're good at that. In the waning days of the crumbling kingdom of Judah, this proverb of sour grapes was making the rounds among the people of Judah. Now, this proverb is a little different than the story that Aesop tells. In the text before us, God is addressing a very serious situation, and He addresses it directly. In fact, note this, it's a great contrast, chapter 18, to all the parables and visions and role plays that we've seen so far in Ezekiel. Ezekiel has been very colorful, he's been very interesting, he's done some very strange things. But you get to chapter 18, and it is very straight, what we would call didactic teaching. Down-to-earth, literal teaching, the Lord speaks to plainly confront a serious false perception among the people. This is also, this chapter, a departure from national judgment. Almost everything in Ezekiel so far has been spoken to the people, or to the leadership, or to the land, or to Jerusalem. But now in Ezekiel 18, this is extremely personal. God speaks directly to the individual. And in fact, I believe this is one of the most personal principles in all of Scripture. But before we get to the principle, we've got to clarify a couple of things. God is not saying in this chapter, good people live, bad people die. That's not the point. He's not saying good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. In fact, specifically as God is teaching the people in Judah, He's teaching on a physical level here, a life level, and not yet, not necessarily an eternal level, although we will make that application in a little bit. He's also not going to deal with here why bad things happen to good people. He brings home here the immediate issue of personal responsibility. That, you could say, is the heading of Ezekiel 18. Personal responsibility. As Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this teaching is all about ownership. Personal ownership. The Lord calls His own to own up to their own behavior because He's the only one who's the owner of all souls. But the people are rejecting this. They're rejecting their own responsibility like sour grapes. And so this problematic proverb begins circulating in Judah in response to the realization now that the land is under judgment. The people are looking around and saying, things are bad. Things are not going well. Someone's got to be to blame for this. Note takers, we're going to go through a five-part outline walking through the entire chapter to understand what's going on here. Part one is simply sour grapes. Sour grapes. The word of the Lord came to me saying, verse one, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I said, this is the proverb. It's making the rounds among the people, both who remained in the land, but also those in Babylon. Sour grapes. It's the Father's fault. They're the reason that we're in the mess that we're in right now. We know this parable was making the rounds because this is not the first time we've heard it among the people at that time. Jeremiah 31.29 In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Jeremiah was hearing it. And Ezekiel's hearing it. Lamentations 5.7 Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. We are in this sorry state because of the sins of our fathers. It's their fault. Without raising your hands, how many of us, how many of you have made the same allegation? I am in this sorry state because of my fathers. Dad was an alcoholic. What choice did I have? (laughs) Mom was abusive. That's the cause of my issues. Grandpa read Playboy. Grandma was mean. It's it's their fault. And in our day, 
It always seems to be someone else's fault, doesn't it? What's the first thing that is asked in the news when something bad goes down? Who's to blame? Bush. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. That's good. The rejection of personal responsibility for personal sin. You know whose fault it is that our country is the way it is? It's my fault. And it's your fault. It's every American citizen's fault. But we don't want to take responsibility for where we are. You know whose fault it is that I deal with the sin stuff that I deal with personally? Mine. It's not my dad's. It's not my mom's. Grandma, grandpa. It's not the past. It's me right now. And it's my responsibility. But we're chewing on sour grapes. BBC News this last week had a headline. I had to read the article. Rise in violence linked to climate change. I knew it was there, Father. Hey, you know what? Jesus said the exact opposite. Matthew 24.12, He said, Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. There's your climate change. The change in the climate of the earth is that lawlessness is on the rise, wickedness is increasing, and because of that, if you don't have Jesus, love is growing cold. Bitterness is creeping in, sour grapes. He says in verse 3, As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine, the soul who sins will die. And that's the deal. And we know this to be true because the decay of the natural man is all the proof we need of the sin nature. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We're dying right now. Look around. Go ahead, look at each other. I mean, this is a. No, I'm not saying that you're a dead group. But we're all in the process of decay. How much time and energy and money do we expend to put off the inevitable? Now, I'm not saying don't be healthy. I myself am trying to be healthy. I'm just saying we're all dying. And there's nothing we can do to stop the relentless march of decay. However, 1 Corinthians 15.52 tells us in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. That is the best health recipe I can offer you right there. We will be changed. But right now, no matter what we do, we decay. And we decay because of sin. The proverb of sour grapes was more than an allegation against the fathers. The proverb of sour grapes was a charge against the Lord God Himself. Why? Because it assumes that God is not fair. It assumes that God is not just. It claims that God is punishing the sins of the fathers, punishing the sons for the fathers' sins. That's not fair. Well, but, Rick, didn't God say He'd visit the sins of the fathers? on the children to the third and to the fourth generation? Yeah, I guess it does say that. We better deal with that, huh? Exodus chapter 20 tells us in the Ten Commandments, right there in the middle, verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and on the fourth generations of those who hate me. But wait. Please understand. He's not saying dad's sins are on your head. He's saying each and every successive generation will be visited. I'm going to come to everyone. And I'm going to see, are you doing the same sinful stuff that your fathers did? If you are, you're responsible for it. They're not. Third generation, are you doing the same thing that was done by grandpa? Fourth generation, are you doing the same thing that was done by great-grandpa or great-great-grandpa? Is it continuing? Are you making that choice? I'm visiting. Every successive generation has its own chance and God visits every single one. 
In Exodus 20, verse 6, he continues saying, but showing loving kindness to thousands, and the implication is thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So every generation, every individual must own their own behavior. And to explain this more clearly, the Lord gives three examples across, number two in your notes, across separate generations. Separate generations. Three examples. Look at this. Verse 5. Example number 1. If a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. There's your first generation, and there will be three. A good dad followed by a bad son, followed by a great-grandson. This is the good dad, the righteous man. And if the man is righteous, he will surely live, declares the Lord God. But we go to the very next generation, his bad son. Watch this. Then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother, though he himself did not do any of these things. That is, he even eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, but lifts up his eyes to the idols and commits abomination. He lends money on interest and takes increase. Will he live? He will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Is it the father's behavior? Was the good dad's goodness enough to save the bad son? No. And we move on now to great Grandson, verse 14. Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed and observing does not do likewise. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel or defile his neighbor's wife or oppress anyone or retain a pledge or commit robbery. But he gives his bread to the hungry. He covers the naked with clothing. He keeps his hand from the poor. He does not take interest or increase but executes my ordinances and walks in my statutes. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, well, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? But the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. And the Lord spans three generations. Good father, bad son, and a great grandson. And it sounds awfully specific to me. And if you look at it again and read through it and think it through, I think you may find that the Lord is describing three generations of kings in Israel. The good father, Hezekiah the evil son, Manasseh, and the great grandson, Judah's last good king, Josiah. Now I can't say this absolutely, but as I read over this, I see Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Josiah. Three distinct generations, three different kings, and we see this played out in their lives. Hezekiah! Hezekiah was a good dad. He is the dad, the good man who lived. Want to see the example of that? Turn over in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. In verse 1, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. 
Well, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember, O Lord, now I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. By the way, for that bitter weeping, if you go down to verse 14, it tells us how he wept. Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. It's ancient social networking. (laughs) But check this out. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Why did God add 15 years to King Hezekiah's life? Well, back in Ezekiel 18, verse 9, we're told very clearly, He is righteous and will surely live. So we see a physical example of a man, Hezekiah, a good king, a righteous, godly king. He finds out he's going to die. He has a mortal illness. He turns his face to the wall and he prays, God, look at my life. Extend my life. Because I've done what you've asked me to do. I've tried to do the right thing. I have walked the path of righteousness. And God says, you know what? You're right. And the righteous man will live. So Hezekiah gets an additional 15 years. Now, there was a downside to that life extension. And that downside was the next generation. For in the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, he sired a son by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh was an evil son. Like the bad son described in Ezekiel 18, Manasseh comes along. We're told in 2 Kings 21.9, he seduced uh, Israel, Judah, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. He was so wicked. Verse 16 of 2 Kings 21 says, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin of which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh even sacrificed one of his own sons on the fires of Molech. Infant sacrifice. From Hezekiah. Good, righteous king with an extended life. We see Manasseh, the bad son, the evil one. Two generations, completely different choices. And Manasseh reigned a total of 55 years in Jerusalem. You might go, wait a minute. If the soul whose sins will die, why does Manasseh live? How does this evil, wicked king get 55 years of ruling and reigning if he was so evil? Well, there's an answer for that. He was evil. He was so evil, God had the Assyrians capture him and do what the Assyrians did. They put a hook in his nose and they dragged him off into captivity. But something happened to Manasseh in that captivity. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 12 tells us when he was in distress... He entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. The most evil king in the reign of the kings of Judah ended up saved. Manasseh finally figured out he couldn't reach grace. But grace got hold of him. And by the way, notice this back in Ezekiel 18, verse 21. But if the wicked man, Manasseh perhaps, turns from all his sin which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Now, I just have a question for you. Anyone here in the barn this morning out sin Manasseh? Any of you sinned as bad as this king? At least based on the biblical description? The point is, even the most evil son, if he repents, will receive grace and find life in Jesus Christ. Amen. What incredible hope for us. I mean, I read that back when we were studying Second Chronicles, and I thought, man, if Manasseh can be saved, maybe there's hope. 
for Jim, you know? <laughs> Maybe there's hope for me. Manasseh was by far the most evil of the kings, but his life ends with this epic turnaround of repentance and grace. Tragically, it would be too late for his son. His son Ammon, who reigned two bad years before he was assassinated by the servants of his own house. Enter the next generation. King Josiah. Josiah, the great-grandson. And we see in Ezekiel 18, verse 14, Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Eight years old? At the age of 18, he renovated the temple, and the book of the law was found in that renovation. It was brought to Josiah. He said, let's open it, have it read. The book of the law was read. Josiah began to weep. Immediately in response, this young 18-year-old king reinstated the law, the feast, the sacrificial services, the Sabbath, the Passover. He tore down all the high places. He was the first king in the long line to completely rid the land of idolatry. And this one boy's faith, born of an evil father, of an even more evil grandfather, this one young man's faith ignited an unparalleled revival in the land of Judah. His generation benefited because he made the right choice. You see, it doesn't have to go downhill. It doesn't have to end in tragedy. You don't have to emulate the sins of your family line because the Lord's mercy outgraces all of the sins of the past, even yours. The question is where to from here? Verse 19 again in chapter 18, yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins, the Lord says, will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father, parents listen, nor will the father, parents don't miss this, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. Oh, my child is my fault. I messed up. Why didn't I? How could I have? You know what? Your child has the same personal choice and responsibility that you have. And he goes on and says, No, will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Clearly, some of the Pharisees of Jesus' day never read this. Turn over to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And we go here because I just want to point out for you, sometimes Proverbs, human Proverbs, inaccurate Proverbs, get so firmly entrenched in a cultural mindset, they're really hard to pull out. And the proverb of sour grapes that God spends the entire chapter of Ezekiel 18 teaching against, maintained a foothold among the Jewish people. And it comes up here in Jesus' life, 500 or so years later, John chapter 9, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Whose fault is it? Who's eating the sour grapes? Is he eating the sour grapes because of his parents' sin, or did he sin himself? What's the deal here? And Jesus answered, listen, it was neither this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, while I'm in the world, I'm doing the only work that needs to be done. I'm the only one who can do the work that needs to be done, the work of salvation. I'm here, it's daytime, I'm doing the work. Night is coming. And when night comes, the work is over. The work was accomplished by Jesus. And we can't do enough work to accomplish what He already has. Verse 6, when He had said this, He spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to the man's eyes, and said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent one. And so He went away and washed, and He came back seeing. Skip down to verse 13. 
Well, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. It was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Oh, no. And the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. Then he said to them, Well, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. See how ridiculous the law became? Or the translation of the law became? But others were saying, well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was division among them. Skip down to verse 24. So a second time they called in the man who had been blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. And he then answered, and I love the simple faith. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. He says, I, I, I got no judgment here. You know, I'm not in the theological world like you guys are. All I know is I was blind, he touched me, and I see. And that's the bottom line. And a little further on, I love this little blind guy, because later on, when they ask him again, he says, why, do you guys want to be his disciples too? <laughs> this guy's out preaching the gospel to the pastors. I love it. But what is the balance? And here's the thing. Go back to Ezekiel 18. What is the balance of my responsibility and God's work. Because on the one hand, we're saying we're responsible before the Lord for our behavior, righteousness or sin. It's our responsibility. And on the other hand, we're saying, but Jesus does all the work. So does that mean I'm no longer responsible? How does this work? Hold that thought as we continue on. Verse 21, But if the wicked man again turns from his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he practiced, he will live. And then the Lord says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. And we come to number three in our outline here. And it's what I would call a summoning gift. A summoning gift. There is a beckoning. There is a summoning that reaches to us. We stand, as it were, before two roads. Two roads stretch out before us. From where we are right now, I'm talking about this morning, we have two ways to go. One road is the road of wickedness, the road of sin. And the Bible tells us if you go down that road, sin pays a fair wage. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's fair. It's absolutely fair. Death is the salary of sin. Death is the payment for sin. It is not God waiting to pounce on someone. It is sin itself that brings about death. It is a natural and supernatural fact that the way of sin will kill you. The entrance of sin into the world brought death into the world, and each one of us have a sin nature, which is why we decay and die. That's the deal. Now some might say, well Rick, so you're blaming someone's death on their sin that they sinned and they're so bad God just killed them? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying because sin is in the world and sin is in us. And we have all sinned, even though we haven't maybe sinned like Adam did, but we have all sinned, we all deserve the fair wage of death. But another road stretches out before us. Because Romans 6.23 says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin pays a fair wage. God gives a free gift. Those are the two roads. The road of sin, where the wage is death. Or the road of righteousness, where the free gift summons us. Do you understand what I'm saying? The free gift beckons us down the road of righteousness. It is not the righteousness that saves us. Our salvation is free. It's the gift of the Lord. But down that road we hear the voice of God speaking, summoning, saying, Come on this way. You're saved. Walk the road of righteousness. 
I bought your life. Come this way. Live this way. You know what that means? As we stand at the crossroads, it is not what what is behind me that matters. It is not the sour grapes of the last generation. It is the road I choose today, this morning, right now. Think back to what God said. In the Ten Commandments, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, to the third and to the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. God is saying this, hate me and you're naturally going to sin and eventually die. Love me and you will be compelled with a supernatural call to righteousness and you will live. Jesus said, if you love me, John 14, 15, you'll keep my commandments. That's another natural fact. If you love Jesus, you're going to keep His commandments. It's just the way it works. You're not proving yourself. You, you, you already love Him. But the keeping of the commandments flows out of that love. You want to sin less? Love God more. It's that easy. The summons of God, that summoning gift, is a love call. The love call of the Father. That's what we hear in this. In this chapter, He is beckoning. He is calling. His delight is always in love. I was sitting there talking with Eric. A lot of us have been talking with Eric lately. The Lord has really been using Eric to speak. I was talking to Eric about this, and he made the comment just yesterday. He said, you know, it's... This whole idea that, that God loves His children. I actually asked him, I said, Eric, I don't know what it's like to be in your bed right now. So I've been thinking a lot about this. If I were lying there, if I was the one with cancer, where would my heart be? What would I be thinking? How would I be handling this? And, and he goes, you want to know? And I said, yeah. And he said, I, I think the place of most peace that I have is when I close my eyes and I think about how good God is. That is just so good. And I had just been reading Ezekiel 18 and I said, you know, the goodness of God is so remarkable. Not only does He not delight in the death of the righteous, He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. The most wicked, vile, evil sinner. And God is not happy when they die. He's not like, yes! (laughs) That's one out of the way. See, that, if Rick was God, might be the way things went. (laughs) He does not delight in punishment for the wicked. We often do. That bad guy deserves everything he gets. Take him down. Take him out. When the wicked are punished or die, it makes us feel a little more like maybe we've actually jumped high enough to reach the grapes. We need to remember something here, folks, and that is that our salvation is a gift. That we are summoned by the gift of God's grace as much as the wicked person needs to receive it, so we need to remember that it's a gift that's given. Verse 25, the Lord now challenges the people of Judah. He says, yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. And here's back to the statement before. That the people are not just blaming their forefathers, they're blaming God. You say that the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? And here, number four, we come to a sincere goodness. A sincere goodness. Let me ask again, what is more fair or just? What's more fair or just? To blame or to accept responsibility? Where is justice? And where is fairness? To look for someone else to take the fall? Or to take it yourself? It is morally inconsistent to blame other people while crying out for justice and fairness. That's sour grapes. I want to be treated right, but I blame you for anything that goes wrong. It's completely upside down. I want everyone else to get what they deserve, but not me. And Jesus said in Luke 6.31, Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. It used to be called the golden rule, and it was shared in our schools. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, what credit is that? 
Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be called sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Back in verse 26 of Ezekiel 18, when a righteous man turns away from righteousness, commits iniquity and dies because of it, for his iniquity which he has committed, he will die. And again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Do you see the contrast? Israel's looking for blame and God's saying, no. It's your responsibility. It's your relationship with me. Stop trying to cast it off another. That's what's not fair. It's not fair to say it's someone else's fault. Take your own responsibility. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. And then he says, Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed. Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Talk about grace. Micah 7.18, the prophet says, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession, does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.4, He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's sincere goodness, His absolute justice and fairness, says, I want to deal with and will deal with each individual person, one-on-one, mano y mano, you and me. Wouldn't it be mano y deo? No. (laughs) Because God became flesh and dwelt among us and said, now I will deal with you as one man to another, as Jesus to each individual person. And I want you to be responsible to me. You and me. Back to what I asked a while ago. What is the balance then of my responsibility and God's work? Jesus said over in John 9 verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed in him. That bothers some people. Wait, God made this man to be born blind? So he could later heal him and be glorified? Mm Mm-hmm. How could he do this? All souls are mine, declares the Lord. We belong to him. Whether we want to or not. We have life, we have breath, we have existence because he called us into existence, even knitting us together in our mother's womb. It was his call. And you're here because of him. And of the two roads now that stretch out before us, which one allows for the works of God in my life? Well, the answer is easy. It's not the road of sin. That denies the works of God. It's the road of righteousness. So the answer is easy, but the process is what's a little harder to get. Now dial in and see if we can get this ending here. Verse 31, the Lord says, Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make for yourselves or make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. I read over this again and again and again. And I kept coming back to the same place. If I was a Jew in Israel at the time and I heard God say this, I'd say, am I supposed to somehow supernaturally grow a new heart? Grow a new... I'm supposed to make 
a new spirit for myself? How am I supposed to develop a whole new me? You know, there's a Buddhist teaching that's receiving some groundswell today in our country. And it's the teaching of the Tulpa. The Tulpa. Anyone hear of this? Okay. Jake, you might want to pay attention to this because students are being drawn to this idea. It is a Buddhist concept rooted in Buddhist mysticism, but it's finding new play, especially among those who like uh, fantasy gaming. The Tulpa. It's the concept of creating your own personal thought form. That is, disciplining yourself to develop a character in your mind and to develop a personality around that character to give the character a name, to give the character a form, to think it through and discipline yourself so much that that characterization takes on, literally, in Buddhist mysticism, a physical form. Becomes a person. It's kind of the idea of an imaginary friend taken to a whole new dangerous level. It was brought up to me the other day. What do you think about this? This idea of a tulpa. Is this, you know, is this kind of not a big deal? Is this a dangerous thing? It is absolutely one of the most dangerous things I've heard of in a long time. Why is that? Because it kicks the door wide open for spirit guides, which is just a nice way of saying demons. You can't create a personality. You can't develop a whole new person if you do and you commune with that person. I'm not talking about fiction. I'm not talking like hobbits and Tolkien. I'm talking about developing a personality with whom you interact in your mind. And you do that, and that is an open door for a demon to begin to direct and guide you. It's either that or you come under the sway of the Holy Spirit. It's one or the other. You open up your heart to listen to something other. It's either going to be the Spirit of God or it's going to be demonic. Two roads, two influences. One is the path of sin that invites the demonic. The other is the path of righteousness that invites the works of God such that Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.18 the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. In other words, it gets more and more clear as we go. As we travel down the road of righteousness, we receive grace, we hear the beckoning, summoning love call of God, we begin down the road of righteousness, and gang, the further down that road we go, the better we see, the more clearly we hear, the more alive our faith. James says the one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The works of God in your life, blessing you. Here's the hard truth of all of this. Sour grapes are easy. Bitterness and blame take no discipline whatsoever. Personal responsibility is hard, Because the moment we start trying to cast away all of our transgressions, we start trying to make for ourselves a new heart and a new spirit, guess what? We realize (laughs) we can't. We're dead. I'm leaping. I'm jumping. I'm trying to be righteous and I can't reach the grapes. Even if I stumble along a righteous road, I still can't make a new heart for myself. And the grapes look so sweet, but I just can't reach them. So, maybe they're sour after all. People begin to despise and despair. And they despise the sweetness of grace. Listen, though we can't make the necessary change, we can choose the right road. You can begin to walk that road. We cannot make for ourselves a new heart, but we can come to Christ who does. Number five, fifth thing, sweet grace. Sweet grace. You see, it's interesting. Here he says, make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why would God say that? I think because he wants Judah to try. Try to be righteous. Try to live righteously. Try to be a Hezekiah. Try to be a Josiah. You know what? Hezekiah sinned. He tweeted. He did sin. He was not a perfect king. He tried to live righteously, but he couldn't be perfect. Josiah, for all that he did, do you know why Josiah died? He went against the Lord. 
God said the battle in, in Megiddo is not your battle. Don't go fight. Josiah went and fought anyway and a stray arrow, arrow came and, he, and killed this righteous son of God. So even in their goodness, trying to walk righteously, they still couldn't quite get there. And I believe that's why God says, make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. I'm trying, Lord. I'm trying. I'm leaping. I just can't reach it. Exactly. And Ezekiel 11.19, and again in 36.26, he says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within them and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That is a beating, pumping, working heart. And so God is saying, He makes the change. He is the power to walk in that new road of righteousness. He is the power to bear up my responsibility to follow Him. And it is my responsibility. But it is not by my, by my power that I can walk that walk. The Lord, listen, the Lord wants His people in process. Which is why He says, make for yourself a new heart. I want you engaged. I want you walking. I want you doing this. And this is, this is to me where it all comes down. Where personal responsibility kicks into high gear. I know that the new heart, I know that the new spirit comes as a free gift of God. I am born again, spiritually reborn. But once I've got the new heart, it needs to be exercised. I need some cardio workout. And that is the road of righteousness. And that is the call to responsibly live a righteous life and to deny the road of sin. That's what Paul means, by the way, when he says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's doing the work, but I want you to work out. Work out your salvation. How many, let me just show of hands, how many people worked out their bodies this last week? Went to the gym, went walking, went running, whatever. Okay. Those of you who raise your hand, good job. The rest of us, shame on us. <laughs> How many of you worked out your salvation this last week? Worked out in your salvation. Did some serious worshiping, praying, pouring over the Word, ministry in the body, sharing the love of Christ in a lost world. For those of you who intently worked out your salvation in those ways this last week, how are you feeling? A little stronger today, Leslie? We had a group of people down here, and I know not everyone, I didn't come down and help with VBS. It was taken care of. But we had a group of people down here who were working out all week long. And I guarantee you, and I've talked to several of them over the weekend, their hearts are pumping because they're working out. Because they bought themselves more salvation this week? No. But because they walked in it. And they worked it out with the fear of the Lord and trembling before Him. And that's your part. And that's my part. That's how we enjoy the sweet grace in this life. We keep working out. And Father, I ask this body be infused with a sense of responsibility. That we will not look to others within this body to fulfill our relationship with You. That we will not base it on what others are doing or what others are saying or where others are going, but we will look only to You and our own hearts and we will accept, Lord, that we have ownership over our behavior And you have ownership over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.